you'll go ahead and grab your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 130. If you don't have one, share it with somebody next to you, or there's probably one in front of you in the chair. Uh, but we're today starting our series in the Psalms, we're calling it the Pilgrim Songs, and um, we're not going to be doing every Psalm, okay? We're not going to be in here for years and years and years. As good as that would be, we're not going to do that to you. We're just doing it for the summer and hopefully continuing into future summers, uh, but we'll see how this one goes. I mean, this is the largest book in the Bible. There's so much content in here. Um, this is one of the richest Psalms, um, Psalm 130, so I'm excited to to go through it with you guys this morning, as well as all the other psalms we have over the summer. And each one is going to be pointing to a little bit of, of each part of our order of worship. So on your worship guide, there's different elements that are specifically picked out. And so this one today is really focusing on that very top line. Um, so we'll get to that later in the service. But let's stand now and, and read it together. We stand as a reminder that this is God's holy word and that it deserves our reverence, that he might speak to our sleepy hearts this morning. This is what it says. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for speaking to us through them. We pray that you may... You just make yourself more known and understood today in our hearts and in our minds through this psalm. Don't let myself get in the way. Don't let our distractions or what's going on in our, in our day after, after we're leaving from here, don't let that distract us from what you're telling us. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to this message this morning. We just pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The beginning and ending of a poem goes like this. Come let us curse our master ere we die, for all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is dead, let us curse God most high. Laugh then and slay, shatter all things of worth. Heap torment still on torment for thy mirth. Thou art not Lord while there are men on earth. I don't know if you've heard that quote from C.S. Lewis before. It sure doesn't sound like Lewis, does it? Right? This is actually from a poem he called De Profundis, from a collection of his called Spirits. So this is a young Lewis, and if you're a fan of him, you know that he was an atheist, desperately trying to disprove God's existence. And so he wrote this poem and many others, along with many other people writing De Profundis types of poems. He wrote it out of such resentment and anguish and anger, and it's completely blasphemous, right? It's totally not who you'd think C.S. Lewis would become. And he later confessed that this poem was during a time when he was living like so many atheists and anti-theists in a world of contradictions. And he said, I quote, I maintained that God did not exist. I was very angry with God for not existing, and I was angry that he created the world. So perhaps you were once like Lewis. Perhaps you once thought similarly to him, or you struggle with some of these same 
things that he is talking about, or maybe you have family members or friends that blatantly would agree with what he's saying right here. Wondering, as Bernie prayed earlier, why bad things happen in this world, why such messed up things go on in the world that are around us. If God is in control, where is he? Causes anger and anguish in our hearts, ultimately not believing in who the Lord says he is. And it's ironic, I think, that Lewis would be angry at somebody for not existing, as in he wishes he did exist, and that he would do something about it. But it was hard for him to justify what was going on. And there are some of us that are hurting. I know today there are people who are dealing with loss, or new seasons of challenges, loss soon to come, or their relationships are fractured, or we just don't have that same fire in us. It's growing very, very dim. We feel very numb and complacent, apathetic. However you came in here today, I don't know what your week looked like. I don't know what's going to come in this next one, but I know there is good news. And it's in this very psalm that Lewis struggled with. And I was sitting here in the church Wednesday night and listening to the worship team practice and play this very psalm that we're going to sing after this and all the other songs that were beautiful and talked a little bit afterwards and they left and then I think the last car pulled out because it started to rain, downpour. It's the way the Columbia likes it to rain nowadays. It's not just a nice little sprinkle. It's got to be some flash flood. Heaven's opened up and all the water just dumps in 15 minutes. But, but I, oh, and I was worried that the door might flood in a little bit because I've seen that, but it didn't, it didn't and we were okay. But I thought in that moment, man, we needed the rain, right? Like my lawn has been the most brown that I've ever seen it before in my life. And, and I thought, what a small thank you to the God of the universe, um, that he would, he's promised us this rain, right? He's promised us this, and yet I, get, I can get so frustrated at his timing or think so little of, of the rain, just that, oh, good, it rained, finally. But instead, it's, I'm forgetting who provides that rain, who promises those things. And so that's how I want us to approach this psalm this morning, is just simply for the fact that rain comes and somebody provides it, that it's not, overly complicated. It's not for the scholarly or the most biblically sound or experienced Christian. The Psalms are beautifully written, and I think the, the wonderful thing about them is they're met with our real feelings, our raw emotions, and God's ultimate truth. They're combined into a psalm. And so this psalmist, what we just read, is an outpouring of their heart, okay? But it's also their heart knowing what's true about God. And so when the rain comes down, I can think that that's God, Simply put, that I don't have to disassociate, okay, we needed the rain and the rain came, moving on with my life. I can pause for a moment and say, you know what? There is somebody who's in control of all things. And it's as simple as the rain coming down. So I want that to wash over us this morning and remind us as we go through this whole summer that the Psalms are very simple. They're very easy for us to just sit and rest in. We don't have to dig extremely deep. We, we certainly can, and that's healthy and good, but you can share this with anyone. I know we just left Daniel, and you probably have a little bit of a brain funk from Daniel, right? Daniel was so good, but it has such deep theological doctrine, but this, this psalm is just clear as day. And so I'm really excited that we get to go through it together. It's very powerful. This psalm, Psalm 130, is a pilgrim psalm. So it's a psalm that 
uh, along with Psalms 120 through 134. They all start with that same header, a song of ascent. So this would have been a song by, they, they would have sung it, the Hebrews, on their way to Jerusalem, up to Mount Zion, to the temple, where they would have made sacrifices and celebrated festivals and prayed and worshipped. And so they would have sung this, and again, this preparation, reflection, confession in our order of worship, they, they sang this on their way to worship. Before the worship service began, they were already worshiping. That's what we're called to do as well. Be pilgrims. Before, before Joey or I or anybody else comes up to this mic and says, good morning, we're ready. Before we sit down, we are ready to worship because we have reflected on the goodness of God. We have prepared ourselves, perhaps the night before, for worship. This is also a, um, a penitential psalm. So there's, this is one of seven penitential psalms. Penitential in that it's an expression of sorrow for sin. So the author, the, the psalmist here is expressing their deep sorrow for what they've done out of the depths. So we know they're not in a good place. They're extremely, um, they're, they're hurting. They know that they've done something wrong. And so there's this cry out to God. And it's also very Pauline. We know that Paul often talked about his sorrow for his sin, wanting to do what was right, but struggling with doing what was wrong. And so... Paul, like many of the New Testament authors, that he, he probably used a lot of his psalms in, in, in what he wrote to, in, in the New Testament. And so it's also a reflection of God's attitude towards sin as well. He is, he, his heart breaks for sin as well. It's not just the psalmist. He knows that he's breaking the Lord's heart. And so I want us to, to for a moment, just consider that this is man's ultimate problem, sin. I know that's super basic. And again, that's why, that's why the Psalms are so good, because it takes us down to the bare bones, that this man is guilty in sin. And God's attitude towards it doesn't depend on how he feels about it, though he has it very right in this Psalm. And we can get it so wrong, but this is so good for us to, to be reminded of, that when we go wayward or we break God's law, of the perfect lawgiver and Lord, how can we be, how can we be made right with him? This is one of the clearest psalms that demonstrates how to be made right with God, which many struggle with. Some don't believe that they need to be made right with God, that he doesn't even exist. But we know that we need to be made right with him when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. This psalm is also a a very big favorite of many theologians. So Alistair Begg notes that this was Calvin's favorite, Augustine's favorite psalm, and it played a big role in the uh, conviction and Uh, regeneration of John Wesley. He actually heard Martin Luther preaching through Romans, quoting this psalm, and then Martin Luther wrote a song about Psalm 130 using its words and the lines that, O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? Wesley heard the choir singing that. He was an unconverted minister at the time, and he knew that he could not stand. And so this psalm is powerful. This This psalm is, it's been amazing to walk through this week. And I hope that we can move forward looking back at this psalm whenever we are faced with doubts or concerns about who God is or when we feel like we are unlovable, that we can come here knowing that we cannot stand. I'm not saying that, but that, but that this, is a, this is a psalm throughout history that has proven to be mighty and given men and women extreme amounts of, of courage and hope. And so... Um, 
Psalms are often used by Jesus in the Gospels. They're often, I counted 28 times, there might be more, then there's 100 references in the New Testament, right? We talked about Paul using them all the time, and they're so important for us to engage with now. I think it's tempting to think that these were for, back then, this was for the Hebrews and for this other generation that was no longer, it's no longer going to apply to me, or maybe a little bits and pieces here and there, but they're very much for the church now, If Jesus quoted them, if he used them in ministry, they're certainly valid for us moving into into tomorrow. And so the the Psalms are, a lot of them are written by David, who expresses his feelings and his expressions of being sought after by the enemy and needing salvation and victory and being, uh, being saved, causing him so much grief over his own sin. He expresses all these things, and yet they're they're still met with the unchanging truth about who God is, who God is, how how God listens and cares for us and loves him despite these things that are happening, despite what David feels at the time. True feelings that we commonly share met with the unchanging truths of the creator and sustainer of the universe. So the unbelieving world's not going to understand what we're talking about. This doesn't make sense. Makes them maybe angry like Lewis or maybe makes them numb. But it should not do that to us. Psalm 130, it's a working of the Holy Spirit to illuminate to us what is ultimately true, how to be made right with God. And it's written by a psalmist who understands that clearly and says four things. So if you like taking notes, this is, these are four things that are being said by the psalmist. And they each go in pairs of, of the verses going down. The first one is crying out for their sin. Then he's confessing it. Thirdly, waiting for the Lord. And lastly, sharing or preaching. So much like our worship guide, which has specific format for a reason, the psalmist is going directly in order. This is a true song of ascent, as the header says, that they, we are starting in the depths and we're going to end somewhere else. So he's crying out, knowing they're not all put together, knowing that it's because of their sin. And this is what sin does. This is the nature of sin, that it puts us in places that we cannot save ourselves. We're completely helpless when it comes to our sin. It's not just a physical depth that this psalmist is in, it's a spiritual one, fully aware that they are stranded and they're incapable of self-rescue. And there's a reason they're crying out. And I think it's super important for us to remember why they're crying out. And that to, to take this as an example for us moving forward, uh, the depths are often referred to in Scripture as, as Sheol, place in the state of death, right? But in here, in, in Hebrews, it kind of has more of an interpretation of, of waters or depths of the sea and indicating almost drowning, right? So this is, this is a desperate call upon God. So we don't know the details of what transpired. We don't know what they did, what's taken place, but by context, they're in great despair. And the psalmist is doing absolutely the best thing in crying out to God. So there's so much propaganda and media in our face these days. And, and I feel like the past few years, one of the biggest cries is, is you can do it yourself. You can do the self-care and the self-help. You can remove the bad from your life and get the best. Don't invest here. Invest over here with the people who are actually going to give you things in return. You know, this, the, these aren't necessarily bad things. I'm not going to bash those things because I think there is some good 
in those, but I think they've gone very, very far. And they make us, the temptation is to think that we're capable of doing things that we're not actually capable of doing. We do not rely upon God. We think that we actually bring something to our salvation. We believe that we actually can get out of the depths, that they're not that bad, that I can just dig my foot in here and climb out, and over time, I'm going to be fine. It's going to be leveled out, and, and we, can, we can, almost like a superhero, we, can't, we can do anything. And then God, you know, he helps. And that's our temptation, that through self-help or through, through any sort of removing of the bad, and, and, and if I just cut this out and stop this, then, then my life's going to get better. And we just don't take sin seriously. We don't think it's that bad. We forget why Christ needed to die, why he needed to sacrifice himself. We forget the nasty stain of sin and how we cannot wash it clean. And maybe, maybe the life lessons doesn't resonate with you. And this one resonates more with me. And it's a bigger temptation for me, but it's, it's thought that, do I really need to do that? Do I really need to call out for mercy? If God sent his only son to die on the cross, to live the life that I could not live and die the death that I deserved and raised from the dead, if he has called me a child of the living God by faith, why do I need to cry out for mercy now? Hasn't that already been paid for? Hasn't, hasn't that been enough? And at once saved, always saved. What mercy could we be talking about that I don't already have? I'm an adopted, regenerated child of the living God. Wrath of God has been satisfied. He saved me from the depths. Forgiven me no matter what. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's words in his gospel. Let's say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then later in his first letter, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I think we get those first and third lines mixed up. It'd be very bold to say, I've never sinned in my life. I've never done that, ever. I'm perfect, and I don't have any issues. But then to think that that first line means the exact same thing, I think we're off. If we say we have no sin, that's different than never sinned. It's possible for the Christian to live according to the law, to not break God's commands through the Holy Spirit. That's totally 100% possible, though it's, <laughs> we know we don't do it. Right? We fail constantly as, as, as Christians. We sin. So that's what, that's what John is talking about. This sin once we've been saved. So what are we, what are we supposed to do? If we, if, we, if we know that we can be in the depths after being saved, what does John just tell us to do? He tells us to confess our sin because God is faithful to forgive. There's nothing you can do to lose your justification. There's nothing you can do to lose that salvation that Jesus bought for you by his blood on the cross that through faith and grace you are saved into eternal life. There's nothing that can change that. It's 100% the work of God in his love that we are saved. No amount of sin can make you unjustified once you've been justified. But you can be in the depths as a Christian, 100%. And I can fall under that temptation that well, I'll just put on my bootstraps and I can get myself out. Or I don't really, you know, God paid for it already. So the depths aren't too bad. 
That's not, what the, that's not what the psalmist is saying. John's saying that's not what God is saying to us. He wants us to come to him, to cry out to him, to audibly say, Lord, help me. Give me mercy. Plead with him. This, isn't, this is very different than I think we live in our day-to-day Christian life. Crying out to God for mercy. So let's not abuse his grace. Let's not... Let's not just keep on sinning because we know that once saved, always saved. Let's cry out to him. For the sin that we see around us, the messed up things when we pull out our phone and see it on the news, those things we need to cry out to God for mercy, for salvation, for him to move. This is why we repent. This is why we plead for mercy when we're in the depth, because he calls us to. He makes us clean, makes us more and more like his son. This is sanctification, that we would be like Jesus. Jonah did it. Remember in our study in Jonah, he did it in the, in the belly of the fish. He messed up. This is a prophet of God, called to send the gospel, and yet he cries out for mercy in, in a fish. And in Hebrews 5, 7, this, this, is, um, this is what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. If Jesus, if even Jesus cried out with tears, ought we not do, do the same thing? It brings about us a, a humility and a fear and a reverence for who God is. He's deserving of our cries. We are called to live in holy reverence to our unmatched king, not letting our sin fester or be put to death. So let's confess it to one another. Don't let it hide. Don't think that you're not in the depths when you are. Confess it to the one who can actually forgive you. And the psalmist does a wonderful example for us. Does the best thing possible. A life of sin for the justified is more painful and unsettling. It's an unsettling indication of your actual heart posture, of where your heart truly lies. Understanding our forgiveness and justification leads us to respecting his sovereignty. Not just loose independence. By repentance, we have assurance of our faith and an expression of love and reliance on our Heavenly Father. So I hope we cry out to him for our sin and the sin that we see. And in this, we'll look more like Jesus. And secondly, verses 3 and 4, confessing our sin. We've kind of talked about that already. This involves that, that line that convicted Wesley of, Oh Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? Who can stand before God? This is the, again, this is the deepest problem that we have in humanity. No one can stand before God. Ligon Duncan, he was with John Piper, a bunch of other pastors talking about what they've been learning and growing in and their different uh, churches that they lead at. And Piper said something that struck Ligon Duncan. Um, he, he was very confused when Piper said it, but Piper said, I've never been bothered about the truthfulness of Christianity because of critics' accusations against the Bible. Okay, this is a PhD in the New Testament uh, theologian, one of the best in the modern era. And he's probably heard all the arguments about why the Bible's not true, all the critical accusations against it. And yet never once, never once has he been bothered by it. But before Duncan could say something back, 
Piper said, but you know what does bring me doubt is my own lack of progress and sanctification. We cannot stand before the Lord. We struggle to be holy, right? If we're honest, we do not live as he's called us to live. And that causes us great doubt. Why am I not progressing in this life? Why am I not growing as I think I ought to be? Maybe God isn't, you know, working in me. Maybe I'm not, maybe he's not fill in the blank, right? I know these are familiar thoughts that we have because John Piper, John Piper is speaking to me right here. I know I'm not alone in this. When we know we're not being obedient, when we struggle to be holy, we know in that moment we can't stand. And if anything, we would just be guilty. So to stand before God would be to be perfect, spotless, righteous. And again, I'm reminded of Jesus, which the Psalms constantly do, and of his interaction in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees, if you remember, they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Jesus was sitting there teaching to people, and they brought this woman in, and they said, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say, Jesus? So these people, they knew the law's authority probably better than we do. They, they devoted themselves to understanding it, but they were blind to one of its purposes, which is to show that nobody can keep it. Let him who is without the sin, who who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. This is Jesus' famous line that I think so much, so many of us know. It's a beautiful response. He's not saying that she doesn't deserve it, which is scary. He's not saying she doesn't deserve what the law says. But one by one, people walk away because they know they can't stand. And I think it's so beautiful. And I noticed it this week. Jesus is sitting down. And the last one standing is the woman. He totally reverses who can stand. That he would lay down his life that somebody else could stand forgiven. He made himself lower and ultimately was the woman who could stand. It's ultimately you and me who place our faith in Jesus Christ who can stand before a holy and perfect God because he bought it for us. There is no other name by which one can be saved And one day we'll stand before the Father who isn't wanting us to be destroyed. He shares the same heart as Jesus. I think we can often think that God's up there ready to just smite somebody and then move on to the next and then Jesus kind of just, whoa, 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 not this one. No, he has the same posture as, as his son, that he desires that all would be saved and that one day those who are in faith, we're gonna stand before him. Guiltless perfect, holy, righteous, because of what Jesus did. Adam quoted Jerry Bridges back in February. It says, We could not take one step in the pursuit of holiness if God in his grace had not first delivered us from the dominion of sin and brought us into union with his risen son. And I'd say not even, not even be able to stand, much less take a step. But now we have union with Christ, our brother, our advocate for eternal life through confession and forgiveness by the Spirit that we may be reverent, that we would reverently fear him. This is, a, this is part of our preparation, our reflection and confession, that we would know that we could not stand without Jesus and that because of Jesus, we can. 
Remember what Christ did and respond in that way. And this leads us to the second half of the psalm. This won't be as long. To the waiting and the sharing of the gospel. So we wait for the Lord. We talked about this a lot. This was in our verse of the year 2021 that says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which brings eternal life. So we wait for the day when there is no more sin or pain. Wonderful days are ahead of us with abundant mercy. Mercy now and mercy to come. We live in the already but not yet, right? Psalmist is longing for the mercy of our Lord in both their current situation and in the final ending. An eternal perspective as well as God help me in this moment. Consummation of all things will be beyond our wildest comprehension. Yet, those who seek after God, who commune with him, who pray to him, who know him, will see a familiar face. Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face shining so brightly that no one could, no one could look at him. Can't even fathom how bright the Lord's face is going to be. That marvelous light, we're going to see it like these watchmen for the morning that the psalmist is talking about. Clinging to the word of God in hope, we look for the first light of day like watchmen. And we've heard it said, it's always darkest before the dawn. Oh, it's the darkest. We're there. And I wish I could say that he's coming back tomorrow. We don't know. But more than watchmen for the morning, we'll be looking for that shining light. Our salvation, our, our final glorification with him, we hope in our waiting. We expect him to come back. We do it with each other in community. To encourage one another, the promises of God are both now and forever. Early in our marriage, we were uh, learning how to communicate, <laughs> still learning how to communicate. That's 25% of marriage right there, is either discussing how to communicate or arguing about how we didn't communicate well and trying to <laughs> resolve it. But I remember seeing, uh, I heard a passage, uh, Savannah had a really hard day, and, um, and now she prays this a lot, and it encourages my heart. And I think it applies today too. It's, it's from the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.22 that says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So where is our hope today? I know you were saved maybe a long time ago, or maybe you've been saved recently, but that I want to know where you are today. Where is your hope today? Can we claim that our souls are the same as Jeremiah? Do we believe his mercies are new every morning? That when you got up, there was mercy that he is good to those who wait for him. Surely he's coming again, very soon. So let us look together for that shining light, ready for him. And with that, we don't have a lot of time. We may not see him come again, and even if we live to 100 years old, it would still be a vapor in the grand scheme of history. So we, we share the good news. That's the last part. We share it. Share what God has done for you. So the psalmist ends with an exclamation to all of Israel. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
Every single iniquity he will wipe away. He's redeeming it. So let's join him in the renewal of all things. The psalmist shouts to whoever would hear, to a whole nation. He says, he says this truth that God has plentiful redemption, steadfast love. It's not just for us. It's not just for the people in this room. It's for the people who are far from God like Paul, who murdered Christians, or C.S. Lewis, who would write such angry poems that God was truly not real, and yet his heart became flesh. We're reaching people like that when we tell them about the gospel, that we believe that God can actually work and save, save people. And if you remember, you were once that way too. He's brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So as he changed you, Tell the world of the treasure that's undefiled and unfading. It's not easy. It's not always easy. But it's certainly not complicated. Point them here, Psalm 130. Because we've all started in the depths. And now, in Christ, we're truly ascending. In right standing with him, able to stand. Share it with the people that God puts on your path. With your spouse. With your kids. Don't assume that they know it, you know. Pray for them. Pray for opportunities to, to share the gospel and the good news. This is truly a song of ascent, and I hope we keep ascending together as we cry out, as we confess, as we wait and we share. Know that you've been saved by grace and have been my, you've been made right with our steadfast, loving Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we get to just be reminded through, through the Psalms of, of how our feelings matter to you, how you listen to us every time that we pray, every time that we hurt. You catch our tears in your bottle, as, as your Psalms say. They're written down in your book. Nothing escapes your eyes. Nothing that we do, nothing that's going on, nothing that will ever come or ever has been has escaped you. You have a redemptive plan in place. And you've called us two things, to cry out, to wait for you, to confess our sin, to prepare and reflect for worship, to acknowledge you as Lord, to share the gospel and be reminded of what you've done for us. That we could not stand unless our advocate Jesus did what he did and that we believe in him. So I pray, Lord, that our faith would increase this morning, that you would get all glory and honor, that we would reverently serve you every single day of our lives until you come back or you call us home. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen.